Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory from the Relevant Radio app. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. I was listening to a podcast this last week, and there are questions being thrown at out at various women in the interview room and they were asking them all kinds of questions about you know being able to name capitals states countries and the point of the interview was to show basically how and not my words but in what the interview is trying to portray how dumb women can be today and i'm just saying it for what it is and that a lot of women won't have interesting conversations who hold by a strong pro-feminist mindset. No, I'm not saying that's what I agree with, but that was the whole point of the podcast. And then they get to a point in the interview where they start asking women, what does it mean to be a feminist? And these women are becoming so triggered by the question. They don't want to answer. And over and over again, they're asking the question and they're not wanting to define what a feminist is. And the girls are getting very aggravated in the interview to the point where finally one of them says, okay, Okay, if I have to go there, being a feminist is doing whatever you want to do. That's what being a feminist is. Now, I'll mention that a little bit more later, but I think that's significant today on the 51st anniversary of the Supreme Court decision of Roe versus Wade. That Supreme Court decision that on paper, you look at it, you read the court case, I've read it many times, it made abortion through Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton that were two separate Supreme Court cases decided on the same day so that abortion became permissible and legal, constitutional through all nine months of a woman's pregnancy. That's what it did at the end of the day. And 51 years later, and just now facing two years after the overturning of Roe versus Wade, we have a culture that is warring over abortion. State to state, party to party, it's still a partisan issue. Abortion is still a normative way of life for many people. For some, it's unthinkable. For for others, it's unthinkable until you find yourself in that situation. And for others, it's the fail-safe. When contraception doesn't work, that's what is intended as the choice. And it's unthinkable for some because abortion is completely unthinkable, unconscionable for some people. Yeah, unconscionably so, abortion is approved in this nation as so-called health care by the medical field itself. We have today, through legalized abortion, institutionalized abuse through the government, through organizations such as Family Planning Associates in California, Planned Parenthood across the nation, and all of the various private ab- abortion 
businesses, because they're businesses, and hospitals that perform abortions, where they're covering up the abuse, sexual abuse of minors, sexual abuse of spouses, people not in relationships with one another, rape, incest. I could go on and on. It's documented. It's there out in the public. I mean, just think about it. You perform an abortion on a woman who has been raped, on a woman, on a child, on a minor who's been raped, you destroy the evidence pointing back to that abuser. It happens all the time. So the question that we will drill down on all hour in many and various ways is how do we make abortion unthinkable? That's the question. Now, here we are. This weekend, we saw women's marches occur across the nation. We saw the March for Life bring thousands upon hundreds of thousands of people to Washington, D.C. You have the Sister Walk in San Francisco with the Walk for Life, the largest walk in the tens of thousands and thousands of people. You have smaller local walks all over the nation. I head down to San Diego a couple weekends ago for the San Diego Walk for Life. And then you have these messages that are so contrary to one another. The pro-life message that says abortion has to be unthinkable. Women deserve better and politics shouldn't be played on the backs of women and babies. Then you have the Women's March and Planned Parenthood who have been blowing up my phone all day with text messages and emails. And their 2024 talking points are, we're in the fight of our lives for the 2024 election. It's a reminder for us that politics matter. Who we vote for matters. They are arguing for privacy. Well, there's no such thing as making, killing, murdering private. I mean, just think about how we have all of these murder mysteries and books, television shows, movies, how we follow real-life murder mysteries in court cases. And yet, for some reason, when it comes to abortion, that should be private and we shouldn't find it entertaining. And I know it's weird to say it's entertaining, but a lot of people follow court cases because death and murder is something that is so extreme we want to talk about it. And that's why abortion should never be considered private. For some reason, all other areas of murder and death are not private, except for this one area. The Women's March and Planned Parenthood's third focal point is autonomy, bodily autonomy. My choices, mine alone. But that doesn't work because there are at least two people there. And I know our culture is confused about gender, but if it was just bodily autonomy in one person, then you really would explain, you really could explain how you could be transgender. But we know, the science is clear, there are two human beings when a woman is pregnant. So that debunks autonomy. And then you have the fourth talking point that they're focused on, that we should be able to choose when and how to have a family. That's great. But you need to honor women, their bodies, and babies' bodies in the process. You choose when and how to have a family, choose when to get married, because that's how you have a family. And you can choose when you want to get married whenever you want, which means you can also choose whenever you want to choose how you will engage in the great gift of intimacy that brings new life. Now, these are contrary ideas to the secular culture, but the secular culture and the secular psychology, sociology, all the research points to you want to be happy, have lifelong committed relationships, have families within the context of the family. So in other words, have babies within the context of 
marriage and push through the challenges that married life and parenthood bring. I know a thing or two about that. (laughs) My last week, we made the rounds of the stomach flu in our house, and it started with my one-year-old on Tuesday. I thought we were coming out of the clear, even though she had no appetite, and then it turned into the middle of the night on Thursday night, Friday morning, into my daughter and I with stomach flu, and then thank God my husband didn't fully succumb, but it was... It, it was a weekend, right? It was a week. Anyone who's ever had to deal with other people having stomach flu issues without getting into details and knowing the stench that is in your nose for like a week after, after helping other people clean up their mess, it's part of parenthood. It sanctifies you. It's challenging. And this is why, actually, I'm going to dive into a piece of research that came out of the UK in 2018, a survey pointing to how for women staying and not just women but fathers too but really focusing on women for women staying home with your kids is actually more stressful than going to work totally here i think that's why a lot of people choose a not to have children and choose to not to raise their own children full-time but to to give away the responsibility of raising your children because it's stressful it's hard it's hard work and so This whole conversation today is around this idea of making abortion unthinkable. Again, we have this warring culture over abortion, warring states, crossing state lines to a pro-abortion state to access abortion, or moving to a pro-life state so that you're in a place where abortion is unthinkable, where you fight over parties. We have a major election coming up at the end of the year. Already, we're seeing the results state to state of what various states will choose for their next Republican candidate headed to the major election coming up in November. And then today on the anniversary of Roe versus Wade, we have a man in the White House called the president who calls himself a Catholic who is radically pro-abortion. And today he and his task force coming together for the fourth time since we had the overturning of Roe versus Wade, he created this task force, a pro-abortion task force, to make abortion more accessible to women, even though Roe versus Wade was overturned. So define the Supreme Court. Do you know what he did today? He further pushed the agenda to make hormonal contraception absolutely free, working with regulations and deregulations with health and human services, really trying to make it sure that people know that minors get this, that a 13-year-old knows that when the physician's in the room with their daughter, parents could be kicked out of the room, insistent that, in fact, sometimes that parents get kicked out of the room. I was talking to a 13-year-old just a couple weeks ago. She said she was at a doctor's visit. Her mom and dad were there, or her mom was there, and the physician asked her mom to leave. And the 13-year-old, pretty young still, became really startled and said, no, no, I want my mom here. Like, why would you try to kick my mom out? And and they said, no, no, she can leave. I want to be able to talk to you about choices you have. And long story short, they pushed and pushed and pressured this little girl, making her feel really uncomfortable to have the mom leave. And she was insistent. Thankfully, she had a mind of her own, a voice of her own. She said, no, I want my mom here. She was uncomfortable being alone with a physician. And do you know what happened? Well, since you insist on having your mother here, I want to provide you with various options for birth control. And they start to push all of the pharmaceutical drugs, group one carcinogen hormonal contraceptives, some of which function as abortion, on her 
And they had to do so in front of her mother because she wouldn't let her mom leave. Now, think about your average teenager today. Maybe a little jaded with parents, don't have necessarily the best relationship. They say, yeah, you know, I'll talk alone. And they sit there and have a conversation about hormonal contraception. And the parent has no idea whether or not that child chose hormonal contraception that can also function as an abortion. This is the war going on. The usurping of parents' rights, the overriding of parental rules, parental beliefs, religious beliefs, moral beliefs that are being passed on to children, not to mention what's happening in the school system. And as the Health and Human Services isn't just pushing for hormonal contraception for free to adults, they push it for children. I remember when I was in college, this is when we saw the so-called Obamacare being pushed at that time. And that was when HHS pushed forward this mandate, uh, giving free access to hormonal contraception. I had peers, small Catholic university, who were on hormonal contraception for so-called health reasons, and all of them had stopped taking it because it was too expensive for them on a college student's budget, even though they were able to have it covered throughout high school. Well, all of a sudden, here they are. They're in college, and Health and Human Services makes it accessible for hormonal contraception. And next thing you know, they're on the pill again and for free. And I saw firsthand all the medical challenges, the emotional ups and downs, woes, the impact on relationships. Let me be really clear for one moment, and because we can't talk about abortion without talking about contraception. And I've seen people in the pro-life movement for years say, just don't engage a contraception conversation, just focus on abortion. Sorry, that's hogwash because contraception also functions as an abortion. And the pro-abortion medical community actually labels a lot of things that are contraceptives. They label them as contraceptives, but they can also perform abortion. And right now, many pro-abortion medical, quote, professionals are trying to label the most common type of abortion, which is chemical abortion. As you know, mifepristone, misoprostol, it's hugely in the news right now. They're trying to relabel that as a contraceptive so that there's no longer a debate over whether or not you can have access to it as an abortion. It's outrageous. It's absolutely outrageous. And this is where we're at in this war over Roe versus Wade 51 years later. Prior to the over prior to Roe being the law of the land, making abortion constitutional across this country, 51 years ago in 1973, prior to that, for many people, abortion was absolutely unthinkable. We're already seeing the legalization of abortion places like California and other areas. But for most people, because abortion was illegal and because actually most states had laws that made abortion illegal, abortion was unthinkable. But because abortion has been legal for over 50 years in many states, it's normative. Because what people think is legal, they think is moral. And so what we need to do is not just make this a moral conversation, but an unthinkable conversation, because people don't necessarily think according to morality, ethics, and religion today. And this will get to, I think, the bigger problem of how do we make abortion unthinkable, which we'll get to in a moment. But there are a couple of key things that I think we need to have in our back pocket to truly be able to respond to some of the most pro-abortion arguments today. And it has to do with, one, when human life begins. You may think that's a silly conversation, but it's actually not because this is going to be the conversation that will set the precedence over at least the next five years with regard to what 
chemicals, what pharmaceutical drugs are labeled as contraception and abortion. And it will actually determine how much access there is to abortion in states that pass very strong pro-life laws. So back in the 70s, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists redefined their position on abortion and they redefined their position on when human life begins. They arbitrarily, with no biological textbook data to back it up, came up with a new policy that claims new life begins, do you know when? At implantation. Total hogwash. You can read any basic book looking at human embryology, looking at the development of the human person. Heck, you don't even have to talk about human development. We can talk about, we can go to any zoo or any conversation, how do you say that? To um, preserve Uh, When you say the the conversational movement, oh my gosh, conserve, to conserve things anyways. Those movements, pro-animal movements, where they're trying to save various types of animals. And I was just, thank you, conservation. There we go. Thank you, Patrick. You could go to any of those movements. And here you have this huge display. I was looking at one not too long ago of the embryology of the kangaroo, of the whale, And when does the life begin of the whale? When does the life begin of the kangaroo, the hippo, you name it? It's amazing. It starts when? At fertilization. When sperm and egg meet, boom, you have new human life. Scientists who study this, when they look at when human life begins, they watch it happen under a microscope and there's actually a flash of light that occurs. The science and the mystery come together. When does new life begin? At the moment of fertilization. This is what the church has always stood by. And yet we have groups like ACOG, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, arbitrarily defining when new life begins as contrary to that. Why is that significant? Because they take a stance pushing for things that are actually abortion, calling it a contraceptive. Because they say... In their eyes, again, with an arbitrary standard, if human life doesn't begin to before implantation, then anything we do before that isn't killing a baby. And this is why many of the states are pushing for very strong and potent chemicals that cause abortion, yet they're labeling them as contraceptives. And currently, we're seeing very high-level physicians pushing to make mifepristin and misoprostol which is the combo chemical medical abortion, the most common type of medical abortion today, making up bare minimum five out of 10 abortions. So one in every two abortions. They're pushing to try and make that labeled as a hormonal contraceptive. So why are there there two arguments that you need to be able to stand by as a pro-life advocate today? You need to be able to defend when human life begins, dive into the science of explaining fertilization, how the fallopian tube has this whole journey where the egg is released, the sperm and egg come together in the fallopian tube, and that human life that has already begun in the the fallopian tube needs to make its way and travel to the safest place, implanting in the woman's uterus, in the womb. And that no matter where that baby's life is stifled along the way, that that is a new and distinct human life no matter what. With all the chromosomal genetic makeup, things such as eye color, eye color, hair color, whether or not that child's a male or a female, all of this data 
wrapped up in this incredible new distinct human life in the earliest stage of human life referred to medically scientifically as a zygote an embryo a fetus a newborn an infant a toddler a child all a part of the incredible development of human life that each and every single one of us go through which conservationists can celebrate if you're talking about a whale a hippo the white rhinoceros that's under great threat for its species or any number of animals. But but the moment you talk about human life, well, any organization, even medical organizations who are supposed to fight to protect life can redefine things for whatever they wish. And so here's a simple defense. When does human life begin? Fertilization, be able to explain it, understand this, look at the charts, see an image. When I go and teach and work with high school, youth group, college age, and even adults, I threw up the, the chart of a of an example of a cartoon of there you go, you've got the female reproductive system, nothing scandalous there, but I just show here's where the eggs are released, here are the ovaries, here's a fallopian tube, here's the womb, the uterus, this is where the baby has to travel through. Any process along the way is killing a human life. We need to be confident, absolutely confident in when human life begins so that we can explain this if and when, and it's already happening, Things that are abortion are labeled as contraceptives and women are lied to, for one, being told they're not having an abortion, or two, they're claiming they are just using contraception when that's not true. The second simple defense, and these are just the defensive elements that we need to have, is you need to know your position on contraception. The Catholic Church's teaching on contraception and abortion are very clear. Abortion kills and takes a human life and damages the mother. And contraception not only damages the body, but it reduces the woman to an object and has her functioning contrary to the deepest desires of her human heart, her whole human life. Although she might have the desire to bring it on and enjoy intimacy in that moment, at the end of the day, it's a fractured understanding of her sexuality, who she is, and what she actually wants. Hormonal contraception impacts the body, the soul, and relationships. I've seen it in marriages, in dating relationships. You start to take hormonal contraception, your partner starts to reduce you to an object. When we fail to look at what the church teaches in the gift of pleasure and union between the spouses, but also the call to be open to new human life, We reduce one another to merely a means to an end to our own enjoyment. And that's why these two things are fundamental for us to be able to defend and stand by when human life begins, fertilization, and that contraception is always unthinkable. Be able to answer it through science. Be able to answer it through the fact that it causes cancer, blood clotting, damages fertility. These are really simple conversations where In conversation, when a friend, a child, a spouse says they're thinking about or starting to take hormonal contraception, can ask, do you know the side effects? Here's a simple one. Have you read the insert? I'm just asking you, please, even if you threw it away already, go get that insert and read the whole thing. It's a great start. Simple, simple talking points that allow for a greater conversation have stories, be able to talk about the impact of contraception. 
What I want to do is not just be able to defend our position of when human life begins, our position on contraception, be able to define also, by the way, when something functions just as contraception and when in the majority of cases, various drugs from O-pill to others that are labeled as contraception can also function as an abortion. It can either prevent sperm and egg from ever meeting or can actually kill a new human life in the earliest stages of development. This is all defensive. Being able to clarify and teach and explain and share the truth, especially in those simple day-to-day conversations with people we know and love. But what I want to do is discuss how do we make abortion unthinkable? I know we think this is really hard, and it is, but it's bigger than just the abortion issue. So stay with me. We'll discuss how to make abortion unthinkable. And we'll also dive into a survey that says staying home with your kids is more stressful than going to work. What's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Really neat, fun fact, and we'll dive into this tomorrow. Tomorrow's January 23rd, which is actually the feast day of the Holy Spouses. That's Mary and Joseph. Did you know that we actually have the wedding ring that St. Joseph is believed to have given to the Blessed Virgin Mary? Yes, we actually have it in Italy. I'll share with you about this really neat wedding ring and the Feast of the Holy Spouses tomorrow on Trending. So be sure to join me then along with my guests on Tuesday who are from WalletWin.com. We'll dive into how to set, keep, and evaluate your financial goals for the year and also take your most difficult money questions with a Catholic take too. If you need a Catholic take on it, we'll have sound money principles and Catholicism behind our money choices because our faith should embody all areas of our life. So join me tomorrow here on Trending and catch the podcast if you have to. It's wherever you listen to podcasts, but if you haven't already, we have a new Relevant Radio app. If you like the old one, it's even better. Go check it out and share this episode of Trending. Also, our toll-free line, if you'd like to join the conversation today on the anniversary of Roe versus Wade 51 years later, we are diving into how to make abortion unthinkable. And also a poll that was done showing that women with kids, um, they actually find that it's more stressful to stay home with their kids than go to work. What does that say? A lot more to this awesome study because I think there's much to be gleaned from it. But stay tuned for the Family Rosary Across America with Father Rocky this evening at 7 p.m. Central. Bishop Eric Pohlmeyer of the Diocese of St. Augustine, Florida will be joining Father Rocky to pray the rosary for the protection of life. So, how do we make abortion unthinkable? I mentioned earlier that we are celebrating, or not celebrating, should I say. What we're celebrating are the lives that we should have embraced, the lives who have gone before us, but because of the wound of abortion, 
they didn't get to breathe the fresh air of this world, or they did in a radically pro-abortion culture, they were killed outside of the womb. This is how barbaric abortion is. 51 years later, praise God, two years ago, Roe versus Wade was overturned in the Dawes versus Jackson Women's Health choice of the Supreme Court. However, we are seeing a war over abortion state to state. It's still a partisan issue, and it's a focal point for many people in the coming election. I mentioned earlier two things that you absolutely must be able to defend to be on the defensive when it comes to pro-life conversations, and in a really simple way that can actually have a major influence with your peers. I hope you'll go and listen to that because these are two key areas, really simple, to be able to drill down on and respond to. Because if you're pro-life, you should be able to engage this part of the conversation. So be sure to listen to the podcast, relevantradio.com forward slash trending. But rather than being on the offensive side of the abortion debate, we need to be able, sorry, on the defensive side, we need to be able to be on the offensive. What will, at the end of the day, make abortion absolutely unthinkable? Well, I think it's easier and harder than we think. It actually starts with me. It starts with you. That individually, we have to embrace people unconditionally. Because of the culture of intolerance, neglect, rejection, this culture of quitting on people versus embracing people, and just think about it, the going no contact culture, the intolerance we have with children, spouses, family members, co-workers, people who simply annoy us, the hatred that is fueled and the jealousy fueled via social media, via reading too many news articles, the them versus us mindset. I can think time and time again of stories I hear of people who are estranged from their families, the whole trend of millennials down, quote, going no contact with their parents. The divorce culture, the absolute rejection of a child via abortion, the rejection of the potential of a child via contraception and or via actually killing the baby in the process. Because as I mentioned earlier, contraception also kills babies. This is the ultimate challenge. Do I feel embraced and unconditionally loved? Because this sets the precedence for others. When we're able to show unconditional love to other people, when we're able to receive it, things such as abortion become unconscionable. It becomes unthinkable. If I have been so utterly accepted and embraced and loved, even in the face of my faults, and unconditional love doesn't mean that you don't have boundaries with people, that you don't tell people the hard truth. There was a poll that came out, some research, and I'll dive into some of the research. It's an Evino study of parents in the United Kingdom. And one of the interesting things in it was that nearly half of all the parents who were polled in it said that for them, being a parent was their very first experience of unconditional love. Now, I see a lot of the parenting trends out there and They can be frightening, but here's what's interesting. I think people who often are experiencing unconditional love for the first time and that they have this child who unconditionally adores them and they believe that they're unconditionally loving their child, they think sometimes that unconditional love is just giving your kid anything they want. But no, unconditional love has boundaries. Unconditional love does the best for an individual. And so... 
this whole conversation of how to make abortion unthinkable, it depends upon embracing people unconditionally. And this is something I've seen firsthand proven as factually the solution to abortion. And I'll give you an example. I spent nearly six years working in pregnancy resource centers. I spent years sidewalk counseling in front of the abortion clinic. I saw women in unthinkable situations, dire situations, dangerous, abusive, too young. I could name you horrific details to the point where you you get why they're considering abortion, but you, we can never understand why someone would consider killing their baby. They just think it's the un- elimination of the problem. What I saw in the pregnancy resource centers, what I saw sidewalk counseling from the abortion clinic is that unconditional love shown to a woman in crisis, even from a stranger, helps her to unconditionally love another and be willing to embrace another human being. A lot of women who journey through pregnancy resource centers often return over and over and over again for guidance, yes, for free diapers and clothes and rent and job application opportunities uh, to see if their outfit is approvable for a job interview. And you see so many things. It's so sweet. And I can tell you there are times where I can think of a couple of times where a girl's like, okay, I'm so excited. You know, she had her baby. She's trying to take care of her baby. She's a single mom. She's going out for a job interview. And the thing she comes and wears into the pregnancy resource center saying, hey, I'm going for a job interview. What do you think about my outfit? And you're sitting here going, oh, my Lanta, there's only one place you could get a job wearing that to a job interview and having to have that conversation. And it's, it's fun. It's sweet. It's funny. It's you feel bad. But these are women coming in, seeking someone who will embrace them. And even when they're desiring to be embraced, even when they have contrary worldviews and behaviors, they want the truth. And that's why they keep coming back over and over. They don't feel judged. They feel loved and embraced. And that is what empowers women over and over again to choose life. And that's why this idea of unconditional love making abortion unthinkable, that's the solution. But it's, at the end of the day, a matter of faith. It's a matter of knowing that God is the only one who truly can love us unconditionally and perfectly. That parents will fail us, spouse will fail us, children will fail us, coworkers, friends. And instead of rejecting the people who fail us, We embrace them. We forgive them, maybe not right away. We still choose them. Maybe there's a season of separation. That's fine. I come from a very large extended family. So does my husband. And you have all kinds of personalities and characters and good and bad relationships, unthinkable things that can be done horrific tragedies that can impact your family, things that can tear people apart, things that can bring people together. And I think something that's key is that we don't cut off the people in our lives. Again, that doesn't mean we don't have boundaries, but because when we embrace people, 
so that they still feel embraced and loved unconditionally, even when they make mistakes, that it's okay to still have boundaries, but that they know where to go when things get difficult. They know what it means to be loved even when they feel unlovable. This is what changes the culture. And again, this is a matter of faith. Only God can love you unconditionally. One of my favorite Psalms is actually Psalm 27. And it speaks of how God is the perfect parent who can love us perfectly as all our other human relationships and people can fail us. And that ultimately where we are made for is to dwell in the court of the Lord all the days of our lives, to dwell in in life with him, to behold the beauty of the Lord. That's where, again, we're embraced by God and embrace him in return. Unconditional love is what makes abortion unthinkable. And it can be really hard to practice this. And this is why it starts with me. It starts with you. I have a whole lot to work on when it comes to this topic. I don't know about you, but it, it could be a coworker. It could be a spouse. It could be a child. It could be a parent. You know who that person is that you need to work on loving unconditionally. Because although it might not be about abortion, this is what impacts and fortifies an abortion culture. When we fail to love people, when we fail to show unconditional love. Because in a culture fumed by polarizing opinions, social media, we have a culture of comparison, a culture of aesthetics, what we see, what we perceive of other people, how we measure up, how we compare ourselves, whether or not we think we're happy based on that. But what will ultimately make us happy is knowing the love of Jesus Christ. And we experience this from God first most, but sometimes we don't know God. Sometimes we're not there in relationship with him. And the way we get to know the unconditional love of God is through family, friends, coworkers, people who are able to give a kind bit of mentorship or interaction, even with strangers. It's always interesting to me going to a restaurant and seeing often overworked waiters and waitresses, the responses they have to customers who are less than enjoyable and customers who say thank you every time a cup is filled, who acknowledge them when they pass by. Again, this idea of embracing people, I encourage you as I'm doing today on this anniversary of Roe versus Wade to take stock of how I can work more on embracing people in my day-to-day lives, in my family, in my, what we refer to as a sphere of influence, those people who we actually do have an impact. This is, I think, at the key side to the pro-life argument that no one's talking about. Because we make it about politics, we make it about the election, which it is, But before that comes faith, before that comes unconditional love, before all else, before the world was created, it came God and the choice he made to create us because he wanted to, because he wanted us. You're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. Our toll-free line is 888-914-9149, and it's sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters. Coming up here on Trending 
interesting survey says staying home with your kids is more stressful than going to work. It's not the only thing. It says lots of interesting facts from the challenges to parenthood. Just really interesting things. I think there's much to be said and discussed when it comes to being a parent. But also, I enjoyed this definition of what a feminist is. And I'll share it with you in just a moment here on Trending. We're talking about what you're thinking about. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. There was a survey done back in 2018 by Avino surveying parents in the United Kingdom. They surveyed 1,500 parents, and what it revealed was that one in three parents said staying at home with a child is actually more challenging, more difficult than going to work every day. I think this is part of the pro-life conversation that needs to be had, how challenging it can be to be a parent. And you often parent according to what you saw in your upbringing, whether someone leaned in and embraced being a parent or not, how your parents navigated it, whether they shirked their duties, whether they gave away parenting to other people, whether they abandoned ship, whether they tried their best, there's so many different things we see from family of origin, but it really does set the example for how parenting is done today. And parenting has changed radically. I actually discussed last week here on Trending a huge controversy. If you follow Ballerina Farms on Instagram about this whole conversation behind traditional family models and just opinions people have and how we see this romanticization of the 1950s family. Woman, pearls, a nice dress, the house is perfectly clean, vacuumed every day, the meal is served, she's dressed to the tea, children are perfectly behaved. And that's kind of the goals where you're seeing this trend toward traditional family life. But that's not historically. If you go back even a hundred years of what family life even looked like. It was much more grueling. Family life was more put together. Children were educated within the family or very locally. Uh, Dads were around working the field. Kids would spend part of the day with dad too. Uh, Moms were always working, providing things in and for and around the home. It wasn't like they were sitting home twiddling their thumbs with a perfectly cleaned house, getting facials or doing whatever they want. This romanticization of parenthood has really damaged the choice of human life. And this is relevant as we're on this anniversary of the 51st year since the passing of Roe versus Wade before the Supreme Court, making abortion legal through all states, through all nine months of a woman's pregnancy. And although that was overturned two years ago, we're in a state-to-state battle over abortion. We're seeing abortion being shipped into states where it's illegal, both abortion being illegal, but also illegal to ship pharmaceutical drugs from out of state or even out of the country. And yet this goes back to a deeper conversation of being a parent, especially for moms, what it means to be a mom, what it means to be a dad, what a true family dynamic looks like, not the romanticized 1950s version. And this survey, again, shows that one in three women said staying at home with a child is harder than going to work. 
43%, so about half said they weren't expecting that leaving the house would become a military operation. I thought that was funny. In other words, like leaving the house for the day. I get that. I'm always thinking, how can it be simpler until my kid pulls off the sock and the shoe for the third time as I'm trying to leave the house and it's now outside the car and I'm jumping out of the car to grab the sock or the shoe and these things that happen. Uh, the survey was interesting in that it showed that a lot of people say, you know, I'm just going to go to work. It's easier. I think a lot of the time people think that uh, there's this choice of career because it's about the prestige. It's about making a difference in the world. But I think for a lot of people, they don't know what to do with a kid at home. It's overwhelming. It's stressful. Hey, my whole house had the stomach flu this last week and it happened in rounds and different people were going at the same time. It, it's because I think a lot of people choose abortion. They choose to veto being a parent at all because they don't believe that they can do it. It was interesting in the research. Um, one of the questions actually had to do pointing that most women about half of women felt like they couldn't care for their own child without their own mother's advice, without grandma's advice. Now, that's a wonderful thing. My mom comes and helps me out once a week with my kids. She gets to enjoy being with them. Uh, my kids get to see my mom, their grandpa. They can see both sides of the family. Like, this is so important that we have intergenerational engagement. And grant. There could be differences of opinion on parenting. Most of what I do is what I saw my mom do, that my mom and dad do, especially my mom because she was home with us. You know, she homeschooled us, guilty as charged. I'm a homeschool kid. Uh, these things that we see from our parents really do influence us. And so it's interesting that 50% of women, one out of two women, couldn't care for their infant without mom's advice. But in a culture, as we discussed earlier, where a lot of women... Are cut a lot of millennials are cutting off their parents. They have no guidance. They have zero confidence in how to be a parent. I have a couple of friends who they can't make a single parenting choice without calling their parent. Now, I think that that's a little ridiculous. And yes, that I know that comes off as super judgy, but I think it's ridiculous because we should have enough confidence to go with a mother's instinct. Be okay with making choices sometimes and not implode having to call your mom to help you figure out how to take care of your kid. Now, there are great times, great times to call and ask for help and guidance and how to do things. But there's a problem with women when women, when we struggle with confidence to care for the children who God has chosen for us to be their moms. Now, in this survey from Avino, which I find really fascinating, a lot of parents said that they were struggling with this idea of needing to be the perfect parent. One in five, actually one in four, said that they constantly felt the pressure to be the perfect parent. And actually, this was fueled when three out of four women felt pressure, and not just women, actually dads too, felt pressure to parent and have this comparison and competitive parenting based on social media. Three out of four parents. Now, this is interesting. I met someone a few months ago for the first time who I see pretty frequently. And I introduced myself. They have a kid about the same age as my three-year-old. And I said, oh, it's so nice to meet you. Yeah, the kids are the same age. This is great. They would have fun playing. And <laughs> the dad looks at me and just starts rattling off all these facts. Oh, yes. Susie is in the 100th percentile, and Susie has achieved X, Y, and Z, and starts lifting, listing off these things. 
I kid you not, it was within the first 30 seconds of the conversation. And I'm chuckling internally. Like literally chuckling because my kid is definitely not the 100th percentile. If you know me, I'm all of five foot two and I have petite babies. And it's just, it's funny to me because I can't measure up to that. And also I would just never throw stuff like that out. I just wouldn't. And it made me chuckle, but it also made me feel sad that we live in a culture where parenting is so competitive, not just for moms, but for dads too. That parents feel, three out of four parents, that there's such a significant pressure of competition and comparison in parenting. It was interesting, actually. It listed what the majority of worries were from parents. And the three biggest worries that parents had for their children were their development, their eating habits, and their sleeping patterns. Which are legitimate and illegitimate at the same time. All kids develop at different timelines. All kids have different eating habits that come and go, and sleeping patterns that can be easy with one and challenging with the other. My first was a great sleeper. My second, not so much. We're working on it. Uh, Kids do things at radically different times. I was actually at someone's house this weekend, and or a few weekends back, and it was interesting because my my kids, you know, pulling up and holding on to furniture and she's one, she's not walking yet. She's not even standing by herself yet. And there's other parents looking going, oh my goodness, so-and-so, she still isn't standing up yet. And she still, she still can't even do that. And she's going on and on. I said, you know, it's not a big deal. Some kids don't walk till a year and a half. Sometimes kids don't walk till 14 months. Oh, some kids walk at eight months and they defy everything. It's so interesting that we have to let go of this culture of comparison that, again, is impacting how people parent. It's actually impacting whether or not people will have a second or a third or a fourth child because they think, well, if my child doesn't hit this developmental timeline, if my child doesn't eat this particular food or sleep in this particular way, I can't imagine having another baby. Not to mention the fact that you can't fit enough car seats in the back row of a car, which seems rather intentional. There's tons of research about how people started having fewer children as the back seat started to become narrower and more difficult to put three car seats in or even two car seats in. And how laws continue to increase in terms of the length of time you're supposedly supposed to keep your kid in a car seat or something of the equivalent. All of these things, these this research and study and statistics, we've got to read them and look at how impactful parenting can be and how crippling parenting can be. Impactful in how your relationship with you, ha- you had with your own parents, how they raised you, really does influence whether or not you'll have children, how many you'll have, the way you'll approach motherhood or fatherhood. How social media will drive how you feel you need to be the perfect parent if you measure up, if you're being competitive. All of it has to be let go. It's a culture that is crippling for life. It's crippling for women and dads, the relationship between mom and dad, the relationship between parent and child, and allowing kids to be kids with boundaries and rules, but a safe, loving, and unconditionally loving home to grow up in. Pray for an end to abortion. Pray for those lives who have been lost to abortion, the women who have been impacted. I'll be back tomorrow here on Trending with you. Up next is the Family Rosary. 
This is Timory from Trending with Timory. My guest Tuesday will be from WalletWin.com. Join me for how to set, keep, and evaluate your financial goals for the year. Also, taking your most difficult money questions with a Catholic take too. Also, join me January 23rd as it's the Feast of the Holy Spouses. That's Mary and Joseph. Did you know that we actually have the wedding ring that St. Joseph gave to Our Lady? I'll share more about that. Just join me Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central on Relevant Radio or the Relevant Radio app.